Hey, what's going on, everybody? Stu Blackwell here with another episode of the Warrior Legacy Podcast. I hope all you guys are having a great weekend. I want to start today's show off by uh, thanking you guys for your support. Okay, so time is a very precious thing. It's the one thing that we can never get back, and I want to thank you all for spending your time here with me. All right, it really does mean a lot. Um, leave a star review. That way, the new people coming in can see what you guys think about it and share it out. All right, tell your friends, tell your family about it. That way we can help grow this thing into something special. All right, so before we get into a brief recap of the last few episodes and wrap up this kind of mini-series that we're on right now, let's go on and roll the ad. That way we can get to all the good stuff. All right, everybody. So uh, what we're doing today is we're going to discuss the last military archetype of controlled perception. Okay, so if you're just now catching up or you're just now joining us, you may be saying, Stu, I don't know what any of those words mean, man. What does it look like? So a brief review, okay, is let's start with what controlled perception is. Now, about mm, three episodes back or so, I went into detail about uh, how Hollywood and recruiting campaigns, major media outlets, etc., kind of push this narrative of how they want all of us to see I mean, essentially everything, okay? But specifically, what we're talking about is the services, those of us that fought in the global war on terror, and why we were in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, okay? So if you guys haven't heard the last three episodes, go back, listen to those, and it'll kind of give you a little bit more perspective on what we're talking about today. But a brief summary, all right? The first uh, American archetype that we talked about in combat was the the Terminator or the Automaton, okay, also known as the Robot. And this is the, the vision of that sort of black and white just sledgehammer, okay? He's cold, he's emotionless, he's unimaginative in uh, tactical situations, especially in a lot of the, the morally gray situations that our enemies put us in uh, during Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom, all right? But he follows orders without hesitation he is the destroyer all right now the second one that we covered was the protector and this is the the presentation of quote-unquote warriors who value shielding the local populace at great risk to themselves um or even death okay and how that was seen as this sort of moral obligation and over time and constant constantly being presented to people, this became like a sort of expectation, okay? So a few important notes as we kind of move forward here, all right? Bear in mind, this is from the perspective of a Marine infantryman, all right? That was my experience during the Global War on Terror. And it's a unique view, okay, of what high-level policies actually look like when they're being executed at ground level. All right. Now, having said that, experiences do vary. Other service members may think differently because of their experiences. And that doesn't mean that one is better than the other. None of this should be taken as judgment against them or a witch hunt. So if you follow what I was saying you know, earlier about you know, robots and protectors and whatnot, uh, it can be a little difficult to establish like why and when these shifts in perception occurred because, you know, the global war on terror kind of seemed to have this evolving mission as it just kind of, you know, drug out. Um, but this is like the general flow as 
I believe it. You know, we went from, you know, the primary mission being to kill bin Laden and prevent further attacks. You know, the gloves were off after 9-11 and we needed the destroyers, you know, or the American Terminators for that. Okay, and then we shifted into shielding the indigenous populations. And it was that that narrative controllers sort of assured us that this was kind of our moral responsibility, you know, and, and that's where the protectors or, you know, the capable defender types uh, were demanded. And that provided a smooth flow into the last sort of phase, you know, which was to further democracy, you know, or nation building, as it's also called. And that's going to be our last archetype for today. Now, to be sure, okay, elements of each were always present, but that's kind of a general progression, okay? As things kind of moved on, we were depicted and described as like liberators, quote unquote, all right? Um, now, all of these have elements of truth, okay? But none of them are a complete picture, and that's kind of how they were presented. And that's where I think it really kind of goes off the rails, right? Now, it's not to say that nation building or protection or either of those are unimportant or that they didn't happen because they certainly did, okay? But it's the presentation of it as a more valuable or morally just function of the infantry, and that's the problem, all right? So the thinking behind this strategy generally made sense. You know, I mean, if we can spread democracy and help Afghanistan become self-sufficient, then it would prevent another 9-11, okay? It also may provide us another jump-off point into further incursions that may be necessary in later years, all right? The fact is, however, that nation-building itself is a much more complex endeavor, right? This is a classic case of easier said than done. It requires patience, okay? On a massive scale. I mean, decades, not years. Think about it, okay? So what we're essentially asking for is a cultural change in Afghanistan, which is one of the oldest societies known to man, from tribalism to democracy. Okay, so over there, they don't have the same national identity that we do back here in America, okay? Or at the very least their national identity is secondary to their tribal identity, all right? Now, the next thing that this requires, that nation-building requires, is a monumental financial commitment. Trillions, not, not millions, okay? So the current number, or at least the most current number that I can find, puts the price tag of the Afghanistan war at... Uh, Coming in at around $2.313 trillion. Let that sink in for a minute, all right? $2.313 trillion. Now, taking into account the disastrous ending to all of this, we can look back and accurately say that that $2.313 trillion is a minimum price tag as a baseline. Okay, but if you had told me that that would have been the number back at the beginning of it all, I would have thought you were crazy, okay? In part, just because of, you know, it's baffling to me to think that that amount of money even exists, okay? Okay, so here's your first torch and pitchfork statement of the episode today, all right? So the fact is that 
looking back on it, we as a country didn't possess the desire and endurance to actually see it all the way through. Now, let's be clear about what it, quote unquote, is. Right? I'm not talking about going to kill bin Laden or even you know, waging war on the Taliban because clearly we did those things and we did them very well. Right? We did kill bin Laden and we shredded the Taliban. Okay, but, um, you know, all we really have to go on here is what we were told by those people that control the narrative as far as what the mission is. And, you know, what they were presenting was we needed a stable and autonomous Afghanistan, you know, with that sort of implied caveat that we can partner with them for future, you know, political and diplomatic gains. Okay, that is a much more time costly in. And when we talk about nation building and all the complexities that go into that, okay, uh, I found an article um, written by NBC's Todd Pittman in December of 2010, which explains this narrative very well. Right now, he's describing the nation building efforts uh, in Afghanistan in the form of schools that were being built during that time. So, Mr. Pittman writes, okay, over the last six months. U.S. troops have wrested the school away from insurgents. They've hired Afghan contractors to rebuild it and lost blood defending it. But the tiny school has yet to open, and nobody's quite sure when it will. American commanders have called the Pir Mohammed Primary School the quote-unquote premier development project in Zahari District, a Taliban heartland in Kandahar province at the center of President Barack Obama's 30,000-man surge. The small brick and stone complex represents much of what American forces are trying to achieve in Afghanistan, winning over a war-weary population, tying the people to their estranged government, bolstering Afghan forces so American troops can go home. But the struggle to open Pir Mohammed three years after the Taliban closed it shows the obstacles U.S. forces face in a complex counterinsurgency fight. One whose success depends not on firepower, but on the support of a terrified people. Similar battles are taking place across the country. In Marja, for example, a former Taliban stronghold in neighboring Helmand province, several schools have been opened since American-led troops overran the district in February. But many parents are still too afraid of violence and Taliban threats to let their children attend. And that's it for Mr. Pittman for right now. Now, the article... Now, the article highlights um, several things here, okay? But the first one is the assumption of infrastructure development responsibilities, okay, uh, by us instead of Afghans, all right? Now, the implication that I kind of pulled away from this, now bear, bear in mind, I'm reading this, you know, over a decade after it was written, okay, was, are we really ready for that? And then I thought back to my experience, because he mentions Marja. Well, this article was written in December of 2010. I was in Marja, like physically in Marja as an infantry squad leader in December of 2010, okay? And while the fighting had slowed since we first got there, it definitely was not to the point to where we were ready to fully transition to nation building, right? And this article kind of implies that that's what was going on, okay? When in fact, um, 
like not even a full month before, you know, Second Lieutenant James Zimmerman was killed out on patrol before the article was written. And then roughly a month after, okay, well, actually on 3 December, a few days before, excuse me, Lance Corporal Lucas Scott was killed. If you're taking that, that kind of casualties, okay, and if you're still losing people, you're probably not in the nation-building phase. You're probably still in the locate, close with, and destroy phase, which is one of the things that this show has tried to establish is that is our purpose in the infantry, to locate, close with, and destroy. All other measures are secondary, okay? Now, another thing that this highlights is the disconnect between the strategic and tactical levels of this war, which to some degree is always going to be present, all right? Nobody's going to be perfect. No country ever gets it 100% right. That just doesn't exist, okay? But who dictates the strategic level? It's politicians, okay? Because politicians are the ones that establish political objectives for general officers who then formulate those strategies to accomplish those, and that flows down to successive levels of planning, okay? So I take into account all these things, which at the time when I was in Afghanistan, I was too young and I hadn't educated myself enough to actually understand any of this uh, as it was happening. All right. Um, but I think back to a specific scenario. Okay. We, towards the end and about this time that Mr. Pittman's writing, uh, the effort changed around our patrols. You know, it, it was, we were told, you know, it, it was less about going out and finding the enemy, which didn't really matter, you know, what it was about or not, we were going to run into them anyway, regardless. Um, but they wanted the Afghan National Army soldiers that we were working with to be in charge of everything. They wanted them to submit all the pre-patrol reports. They wanted them to plan their fires. They wanted them to plan the routes. They wanted them to run the point formations. Uh, they wanted them to make the decisions and us to just kind of be there if they were in a situation to where they couldn't handle something, Okay. Um, the problem with that was, is the Afghan National Army soldiers that we had anyway, at this point, okay, this particular group, this is not a blanket statement for all of them, but this particular group at this particular time in Marja was nowhere near capable of doing any of that. Like not even remotely close to it, period. Okay. So one day we kick out on a patrol here. Um, and you know, we, we get about mm, 100 meters outside the wire or so, and they just kind of sit down in a wadi, and they don't want to do anything more. So after a while of trying to work with the language barrier and you know convince them, to, hey, let's go, let's pick up, let's move, um, eventually Marines just did what Marines did, and we carried on. We accomplished the mission with them in tow, just like always, uh, and we came back to the FOB, and I went in to submit my after-action report. And I was frankly honest about it. Very honest about it. You know, I, I told the, uh, the Lance Corporal Scribe that we had there um, that they were completely and totally dependent on us for everything, for any form of decision that needed to be made, any form of effort that had to be expended just to simply move from one checkpoint to another along the route. Now, thank God we didn't get into a firefight that day uh, because that probably could have been really bad for us. But the chain of command did not like that at all. Because those after-action reports, they get submitted all the way up. And there's a lot more people that have eyes on them other than, you know, the lowly corporal squad leader. So, 
uh, not too long after that, I want to say it was the next day, maybe I get pulled into the company office and uh, the company commander is very upset with my candor. Um, apparently, he felt that a little bit more tact needed to be applied to the situation. I took that, though, and I took his words as actually meaning that we needed to paint the picture of them being more self-sufficient than they actually were. So I said, I, sir, I clicked my heels and I just walked out and I went about my business, you know, understanding that I had given my honest assessment of the situation and other people and higher up officers were going to do what they were going to do with it. That was out of my control. Okay. Um, but it definitely does highlight the fact that while, you know, back home, uh, we were, you know, it was being presented that the Afghan National Army and the Afghan police were these capable entities uh, that could just kind of take over, you know, as we were trying to get out of there. That was not the case at all from my experience. And I know a whole lot of other Marines that had similar experiences as well. So it just kind of begs the question, if that's what was going on on the ground, why was it being presented the way that it was? And I guess that's something that we'll never fully understand. Um, but you know, there's a whole, a whole lot of other experiences that kind of go into this as well. Um, you know, towards the end we had, <laughs> we had these things that we called dog and pony shows. Um, and, and what it was, was, you know, we had some, some generals, uh, some, some very high level individuals, not just officers. Um, but they would fly into our cop, uh, cop Kelly. And, you know, they, they'd go and, see everybody, say hey to the troops and whatnot, and then um, they would spend a few minutes, like a brief minute, outside of the wire, outside of the protective barrier of our forward operating base, not wearing body armor, so they could get a few photographs snapped in that. You know, they'd have a few locals around here and there and stuff like that, and essentially what this kind of turns into is these puff pieces that get presented back home that makes it look a whole lot more tolerable. You know, like people could look at it and be like, oh, it's not that bad over there. Awesome. When in all actuality, there was over 120 Marines armed to the teeth, ready to level everything, okay, if that general got messed with. I mean, it doesn't take, you know, the next Erwin Rommel to see that you should probably just let that opportunity go if you're an insurgent looking to, you know, kill a high-level high-level American officer, right? Probably not the smartest play, okay? Now, let's talk about another reason why this didn't work so well, okay? So, wrong tool for the wrong job, right? Now, sure, we did some nation-building exercises during our workup, right? But the primary focus was never that, okay? It was, it was always on finding and killing the enemy. So I go back again to the mission of the Marine Rifle Squad, which is locate, close with, and destroy. Okay? And that's what we were meant for. Okay? We trained for kinetic combat, you know, with a little bit of everything else kind of sprinkled throughout. But the emphasis was never on building Afghanistan, you know, based off of some, some misplaced and misguided moral obligation. It was a recognition of the reality that that in a tribal society such as this, if you don't at least appease the local actors, then they would flip to the enemy, which happened frequently. And many of them played both sides, you know? 
And when we got over there, we saw that in the form of, you know, Afghan national police, you know, firing machine guns at us. Just, you know, oops, sorry, guys, my bad. You know, but it happened two or three different times. And it kind of made you wonder, like, really, dude, is it really an accident? Okay, in other words, necessity kind of dictated a sort of, quote unquote, like, like, I'll pay you and give you things if you don't feed the bad guys intelligence, all right? Or if you don't backlay our patrol with IEDs, okay? And that's just based off the moral consequences of the situation, all right? Now, we can't just kill them because we suspect treachery. We're not murderers, all right? But if you disagree with that statement, you know, go do a little bit of research on, on how many Afghan soldiers just turned around one day on patrol and started killing Americans because it happened multiple times, multiple times towards the end of the war, okay? So those experiences, all right, that I've had and the things that I've, I've shared with you guys today, that is what leads me to believe that nation building is, is not sustainable for the infantry, okay? And it's easy, it's easy to look back in hindsight and to criticize everything, all right? And if you're like, yeah, well, Stu, you've done a whole lot of bitching today, but you haven't actually presented a solution, well, here you go, okay? We have law enforcement professionals that would be better suited for this type of work, okay? Also civilian contractors, right? Which is another alternative, okay? But if we could have melded those into a more cohesive sort of solution, Okay, or expanded at least the military law enforcement community. Okay, it would have kept the infantry smaller and leaner, right, and allowed us to focus on our primary purpose, which was locate, close with, and destroy. Okay, and also to adopt and maintain higher standards, which, based on the performance of our special warfare community, i.e., SEALs, Delta, so on and so forth. Okay that does contribute to combat effectiveness. Okay, now if you guys remember not too long ago, Eric Prince, okay, lobbied to privatize the Afghan theater, okay? But because, you know, there, there's such a negative and, and frankly speaking, an erroneous view of contractors as mercenaries, which they are two completely different things, um, it would have taken money out of the pockets of defense industry and Washington elites as well, that was struck down, okay? Now that's opinion, that's not research, all right? Just want to go on and stress that a little bit. That's what I think actually went down with that, okay? But this shouldn't be taken as a way to, what I'm about to say shouldn't be taken as a way to justify victimizing veterans, okay? If you guys listen to this for any length of time, you know that I cannot stand that mentality that, you know, that, that veterans are these broken creatures that need to be fixed and our experiences have just completely and totally destroyed us, right? This bullshit, okay? But if we had taken the route that Mr. Prince had proposed, how many homeless or struggling combat vets could have had that opportunity to work towards a better life? You know, it seemed to me that it could have been a way for some to earn a good living based on their skills and experience instead of having to at least partially separate the warrior that they had become in order to provide for their families, you know, and now that happens to all of us to some degree, and it's necessary at bearing points in life for all of us, okay? But I do think that we really missed out on that opportunity.
You know, another thing to note here as we kind of like close it down today, we're short, simple, and to the point, everybody. So just hang with me for a little bit longer. But one of the reasons why I think that this didn't really work so well is because we weren't really permitted to leverage the brutality necessary to prevent the rest of the world from seeing radical Islam as a viable practice. Now, you might think I'm wrong on that one, but if you think about it, there were terrorist attacks increasing all over the world throughout the global war on terror. You know, I mean, you look at some of the some of the instances in France, you know, where you have terrorists that are just driving buses, you know, all over crowded streets and countless others. OK, um, it has to be done to the point before you can nation build, before you can protect. OK. You have got to destroy the enemy. And destruction, let's be clear about this. Destruction means that he is no longer capable of significant resistance. And when terrorism is increasing, when the attacks are increasing, not only in frequency but also in potency, okay, that's not an indication that they are crippled to that point. That has to come first. You cannot protect, you cannot nation build without the security necessary to do so. All right, guys. So as we get out of here today, uh, just, you know, think about everything that we've talked about today. Think about the general flow of events, okay? And, and consider the fact that, you know, like I said earlier, this isn't a witch hunt, all right? This is just one infantry Marine's perspective on why things were presented the way that they were. And the reason why this is so important to me is because it will drastically affect how our generation of warfighter is remembered, all right? And with each generation, okay, in the past, how they are remembered heavily influences how people feel about moving into future conflicts, okay? Um, and I think it's one thing that we can all agree on is that there's going to be another war. We don't know when it's going to happen, who it's going to be with, or what the circumstances are. But there's always another war on the horizon. It's just the way that it is. War is a part of the human condition. And we will never be rid of it. What we can do is prepare for it. Okay? And, you know, I really believe in the message of this podcast. I believe in the goal of helping preserve our legacy as warriors and helping those that seek this kind of life have a more accurate understanding of what they're getting into. You know, more so than what they're going to get from a recruiter or from a TV show or a movie or, God forbid, a, a politician. This is the source, okay? And we have an obligation. We have a responsibility to tell our stories, regardless of how difficult it may be for us or how difficult it may be for others. You know, another thing that I've kind of noticed is that it's kind of getting to the point now to where these types of things, you know, these types of subjects... Um, just anything with the global war on terror in general at this point um, is kind of seen as something that needs to be said, but it's not necessarily something that needs to be heard. And I think that we're going to end up paying for that when the next war rolls around in the most painful way possible, if that's the mentality that we continue to hold as a society. So just something to think about, food for thought. Um, real quick, down and dirty this week, everybody. Thank you so much for spending your time here. 
Uh, hit me up on the socials on Instagram at stblackwell or on Facebook. Send me an email at sblackwell0412 at gmail.com. If you got an idea or if you just want to talk about the uh, show, leave a star rating, leave a review, spread the word, and as always, get savage and stay savage. Thanks a lot, everybody.